messages that, like I, I, if you're friends with me on Facebook, I posted, uh, I've been working on this message for about three years. Uh, and every time I'd write something out, I'd throw it away. Uh, I'm like, that's not what the Lord wants me to preach. And I, I beat myself up over this message time and time again. Um, but we're going to jump into this tonight. And I'm going to give you what the Lord gave me. Now, I can't promise you won't get a 15-minute sermon tonight and then another 15-minute sermon in a couple of weeks. But that's just the way the Lord blesses me, you know. Uh, pastor can take one verse and preach on it for three years. We've seen it. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how such a little man is so hot-winded, but... Uh, I can say that he's not here. Edit that out, Shane. Um, edit that out of, of everything, okay? Uh, he probably is. Um, but as we turn to Judges chapter 6 tonight, uh, we're going to read the first 10 verses and then uh, we'll talk about a little bit more and then we'll read on, okay? In Judges chapter 6, starting in verse 1, and the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. And because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made them dens which are in the mountains and caves and strongholds. And so it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites came up and the Amalekites and the children of the east, even they came up against them. And they encamped against them and destroyed the increase of the earth till thou come into Gaza and left no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep nor ox nor ass. For they came up with their cattle and their tents and they came as grasshoppers for multitude, for both they and their camels were without number. And they entered into the land to destroy it. And Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites. And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord. And it came to pass, when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord because of the Midianites, that the Lord sent a prophet unto the children of Israel, which said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt brought you forth out of the house of bondage, and I delivered you out of the hands of the Egyptians, and out of the hand of all that oppressed you, and drave them out from before you, and gave you their land. And I said unto you, I am the Lord your God. Fear not the gods of the Amorites, in whose land ye dwell, but ye have not obeyed my voice. Uh, in these first ten verses here of chapter six, we see an ongoing cycle that's happening once again. Uh, we through, see it throughout the whole book uh, of Judges. Um, Israel, uh, they begin to reject God. Um, back when God had given them the, the blessing of the land of Canaan, he told them to drive them all out, to get rid of them, destroy them. They didn't obey that command, and they began to dwell with them. And because of that, um, after time, they started to worship the false gods and everything else of the Canaanites. So God had to raise up these men or women, these judges, and in the time of persecution, God would raise up another judge. And this was a cycle that continued over and over again throughout the book of Judges. Most of Judges covers that horrible cycle. And at this very moment, we see that the Midianites and the Amalekites, and the Bible says the children of the east, um, were camped near Israel, waiting for the harvest so that they could come up. And what they would do is they would rob Israel of their food and leave them with little of anything. So... At that point in time, we see what Israel does, and they do what they always do best. They turn their back on God, and they refuse God, and they reject God till they can't stand it no more. And then they cry out to God. They cry out because of the Midianites. Then the Lord sends them a prophet. And this prophet comes to them uh, in verse 8, and it says, The Lord sent a prophet unto the children of Israel, 
which said unto him, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from out of Egypt, and brought you forth out of the house of bondage. I delivered you out of the hand of Egyptians, out of the hand of those that oppressed you, and drove them out from before you, and gave you their land. And I said, I am the Lord your God. Fear not the gods of the Amorites, in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. So this prophet comes to them and tells them what they already know. They know that they've not obeyed God's voice. They know why they're under impression. And as I read through the book of Judges, uh, my, my human mind begins to think about this. And I'm like, you, you know, they, they know what's right. They know what's going to happen when they reject God. They know what happens when they start worshiping these false gods. And yet they do it again. And they do it again. And in my human mind, I'm thinking, how foolish can they be? And this, this is not part of the message. I'm just throwing it in. I guess it is because I'm saying it. But um, we can be quick to condemn them and say how foolish they are. They know what they're supposed to do, but they reject God. And it's at that moment when my human mind begins to think that the Holy Spirit convicts me. And I begin to think to myself, how many times have I been foolish? And how many times have I known what God wants me to do? And I have to come crawling back to him. We can be quick to condemn them and say this, but we're no different than them. We know what God's asked us to do. And before we even really get into the sermon tonight, I'd just like to start by saying life is always simpler, sweeter, better, more abundant when we obey the Lord. And I'm going to be honest, I've seen what the world has to offer me, and none of it compares to an inkling to what my Heavenly Father can offer me. Let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll get into this. Dear Heavenly, most gracious Father God, I do thank you for the privilege once again, Lord, to open your word. I pray as always, Lord, just keep me out of the way and allow your message to go forth, Lord. I pray for every heart and mind in attendance tonight, Lord, that you just give to them what you'd have for them, Lord, and that you would uh, just allow nothing to hinder the service tonight, Lord. Keep me out of my own way. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we see that Israel cries out to God, and then he answers. And the way that God answers here is how he answers throughout the whole book of Judges. He rises up another judge. He raises a judge to intercede on his behalf and lead the people. But there's something special about this judge. Uh, you know, from the time I was a little boy, and if anybody's in my Sunday school class here, they know this is true, this recollection of Bible history is by far my favorite. Um, Probably one of the reasons why it's so hard for me to preach on it is because I feel inadequate to preach this message. There's so many things that we can get from this message. And despite the fact that I'm a straight to the point uh, a preacher, I don't think I'll be able to pull everything out of this, no matter how long I try. I, I can tell you that every time I don't know where to read in my Bible, I'll turn to Judges chapter 6, and I'll read the story of Gideon. And for whatever reason, the Lord has has given me this, this section of scripture. It's where I find peace, and I see how God works in Gideon's life. And we're going to take a look at it over this week and the next uh, time I get to preach that we, we see what God does in Gideon's life. And there's something very special about this young man. What's odd or unusual is that when you look at this young man, he is a nobody. He is an absolute nobody. And I want you to remember what's going on at this time in Israel. That the previous six years... Israel's living under oppression from the enemy. They come up and they're, they're almost to the point of starvation. And time and time again, we see them come up and they're, they're taking everything from Israel, just leaving them barely enough to survive. And this is going on the seventh year. And we see this young man 
And as we read here in Scripture, we're going to see that he is, he is actually in hiding. Here in Judges chapter 6, we're going to read on, starting in verse 11. It says, And there came an angel of the Lord and sat under an oak, which was an Ophrah, that pertained unto Joash the Abizarite, and his son Gideon threshed wheat by the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him and said, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. So we see that this, this young boy, he's hiding. He's hiding from the enemy. He knows that the enemy knows that it's harvest season. And they're coming to take everything. And he just wants a little bit of food for him and his family. So we find him, and he's hiding in a wine press. And he's trying to just get a little bit of food. Uh, when they would thresh wheat back then, it wouldn't be done in a small wine press. It would be done on a nice big threshing floor. Typically, they would use oxen and things like that. So the amount of food he's getting is not going to be a whole lot. Um, but we see that he's, he's here by his lonesome, just trying to get enough food uh, for a little bit of food for his family. And that next part of scripture is the part that always brings me that, that comfort. Because I look at this, this story of Gideon, and I read it. Gideon's hiding, and this angel of the Lord comes to him. Now, I'm going to use a fancy word just because I learned it. Um, this is what we would call a theophany, okay? Um, you learn that in Eaton Bible Institute there. Um, <clears throat> but uh, it's a theophany. Basically what that theophany is, it's just a fancy word. And it describes a, a showing of Jesus Christ before he's in his human form. And before he takes his human form, he appears to Gideon. Well, why is that so important? Why is that so important that this angel of the Lord is Jesus Christ? Well, because we know that Jesus Christ is the creator. We can go to John and we can see that Jesus Christ is the one who created everything. So we see that the creator comes to Gideon, and he comes to him and he says, The Lord is with thee, thy mighty man of valor. This young boy is hiding. I don't see any valor there. I see a man who is hiding, cowering for his life. But what we see is the creator, Jesus Christ, coming to Gideon and saying, Thy mighty man of valor. Even though he sees him hiding, he doesn't come to him and say, thy mighty man who is a coward in hiding. He doesn't say, uh, thy man who is afraid. He calls him a man of valor. I even read in one commentary, which I completely disagreed with, that the Lord came to him and he was having a little bit of sarcastic fun with him. I completely disagree with that. Because what is valor? The word valor is described as having uh, courage during the face of battle. So we have the creator, the one who created all things, who created this young boy, coming to this man who is cowering to survive, and he calls him a mighty man of valor. It's going to bring me to my first point tonight. And my first point is, you have a creator who created you with a purpose. What I love about Christ and what I see throughout Scripture is that he had a plan for every person before they were born. If we turn to Jeremiah 1.5, you don't have to turn there, but it said, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. Now the Lord is referring to Jeremiah there, but it pertains to all people. Not a single person that walks this earth was created without a purpose. The purpose was to glorify God. 
Now, how we're going to glorify God could be in different ways, and how we're going to honor God could be in certain ways, but God created every single person that breathes with a purpose to honor and glorify him. And I think that if we were to look around the world today, we would see all the sadness and everything that's going on and the confusion in the world today, and it's because the world doesn't understand that there was a purpose for each one of them. They were created with a purpose. So many times throughout Scripture, if we were to flip through Scripture, we can see that God takes somebody who doesn't necessarily fit the mold that we would think, and he uses them. Look at the story of David. Um, David steps on the scene, son after son of Jesse's, uh, gets passed over. You know, oh, surely this is the one. This is the one. This is the one. And it's not until they go get the runt, the shepherd boy out of the field, that God says, that's my guy. That's the one I want. And that's because when God looks at you, he doesn't see where you are. He doesn't see what you've done. Once you've accepted Christ in your life, he sees what you could be for him. Once again, he's created you with that purpose. And I believe without a shadow of doubt, when he looks upon us, he sees the potential that each one of us possibly has. And this old world, of course, and Satan would love for you to get caught up on the past and what you've done, even more so where you're at. But God created you for a purpose. As always, I don't want to fail to mention it as a preacher. Um, if you're here tonight and you don't know the Lord as your personal Savior, you can't begin to know what his purpose is for your life. Because you don't know him yet as your Savior. He doesn't have a purpose for you yet. You're still out in the world lost and wandering in, in sin. You need to get that established first. By all means, if you're here in the congregation and you're not saved, Stop somebody before, before you leave here tonight and talk to them about that. Even on live stream, get a hold of somebody at the church uh, and get that settled. But I'm more gearing this towards the saints here in the congregation here tonight. And if you know Christ as your Savior, then you need to know that God has created you with a purpose. He has something for you. Um, this young Hebrew boy is hiding, but the Lord has a plan for him. He sees past what he's doing at this moment. So we see Gideon, he's able to harvest some wheat. We're never really told how much, but I'm guessing it was probably just barely enough to live on. And at any rate, uh, whatever he could harvest, he, he takes it there and he, he processes it to the best of his ability. And as he's there, uh, some of it would probably fall into to the lower parts of the wine press and so that he could take a little bit of grain back to his family. I, once again, I don't understand the process of uh, getting grain and stuff like that than just what I've read. Um, but they would separate the grain from, from the chaff and everything else there. And uh, this is the setting so far that we have set up for this story of Gideon. Israel, it's under severe oppression. They're living in famine-like conditions. And worst of all, they still haven't turned to the Lord. Gideon's doing the best he could by trying to provide some food for his family. And I'm sure if I was Gideon, my faith would be about as weak as it could be at this point. Uh, you see all the oppression that Israel's going through and uh, how he's struggling just to survive. And imagine how you would react if the angel of the Lord, first of all, he doesn't know it's the angel of the Lord at this point. If somebody came up to you and sees you hiding and they say, hey, mighty man of valor, me, I'm hiding. Get away from me. They're going to see you and they're going to take my food. Okay. <laughs> But you just have to put yourself in Gideon's shoes, okay? Um, so this angel of the Lord appears to him, and when, as soon as he steps on the scene, he calls this man this mighty man of valor. Um, 
Once again, God, God created us all with a purpose. And it's just foreshadowing of what God was about to do with Gideon in his life. And I'm going to be honest, we probably won't even really get into the in-depth part of Gideon's life tonight because we're just going to scratch the surface this evening. But I want you to see that God did create every person with a, a purpose. And as he calls out Gideon, I believe that he might be working in some people's lives tonight. He might be working in your heart. Maybe he's calling you out to something. Maybe you're not there yet, but he's told you what he wants you to do. Well, start figuring out how to get there. If it requires hitting your knees on this altar and say, Lord, I know what you're telling me to do, but I don't know how to get there. Start praying about it. Say, Lord, I want to serve you. I want to do what you're calling me to do. Sometimes those, those tasks, those things that he's called you to are, are more than we can handle. But that's okay, because as we go on to see, the Lord doesn't call us to do things in our own strength. Brings me to my second point. When God calls us, he wants us to be doing things in his strength. Use the Lord's strength uh, to achieve the Lord's goals here. And we saw, see almost immediately how Gideon responds to this. Okay, jumping back in our, our uh, scripture here. Uh, verse 12, And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him and said unto him, Thy Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. And Gideon said unto him, Oh, my Lord, if the Lord be with us, why then is all this befallen us? And where be all of his miracles, which our fathers told us of, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord hath forsaken us and delivered us into the hand of the Midianites. So we see almost immediately Gideon says, uh, Lord, I, you know that you're saying that the Lord is with me. You're calling me a mighty man of valor. And once again, at this point, he doesn't know who the, the person is talking to him. And so he responds with a contradictory remark. He's like, you don't have a clue what you're talking about. Um, he says, the Lord is with thee. Gideon says, well, if the Lord's with us, why is all this happening? Why is all this bad happening if the Lord's with me? Once again, I want you to understand, it's, it's easy for us from the outside in looking at Gideon and saying, well, that's Jesus talking to him. How can he talk to him like that? First of all, he didn't know it was Jesus. And none of us has had to live in these type of conditions. None of us have been so oppressed to the point where we're starving to death and we're hiding to try to get some food. This man is distraught. He's a young man. And he's saying, look, I, I, I get what you're saying, but really if the Lord was for us, we wouldn't be in this situation. And then he says, did the Lord just bring us out of Egypt to forsake us? Now we do know all the bad stuff that's going on with Israel was due to a lack of obedience. And they turned their back on God and that's why they were oppressed time and time again. And we could read into this as far as we want, but my mind begins to beg this question. Did Gideon really know what God had done for Israel? I'm sure he had heard it in passing. But what we find out later on is Gideon doesn't have a real strong spiritual influence in his life. Did he really know how good God had been to Israel up to this point? And I'd like to turn that and apply it to our lives. Do our children and grandchildren know how good God has been in your life? See, Gideon's saying, well, I know, I know that the Lord's been good, but really, if the Lord's been good, then why is all this bad stuff happening? And it's really easy for our, our kids to hear us preach and teach, you know, rely on the Lord, trust in the Lord. But do we ever really tell them how good that the Lord's been in our life? Young people, I'd like you to look around the congregation tonight, okay? Yeah, that, that's you guys. 
I know some of you are like, I'm a teenager, you're still young, okay? <laughs> and I want you to see some of these older folks, some of these great godly people that I'm proud to call my church family. And I want you to think, do I really know them? Have I ever talked to them? Get to know them. Ask them about their salvation testimony. Not only that, but ask them about some of the struggles that they've had as a Christian. Because what we see here in Gideon's life is, yes, Israel's oppressed. And Gideon's saying, does God really do any of that stuff for us? And what we're risking, church, in America today, is these kids not knowing how good God really is. The world does not want them to know how good God is. You older folks, I'll let you decide who that is. I'm not pointing nobody out. It's easy for us to preach and teach, lean on God for our strength. But do we really tell these kids how good God has been? We see what Gideon asked here. He says, and if the Lord be with us, why has this befallen us? And where be his miracles, which our fathers told us of? God's still performing miracles. He hasn't stopped. Now, we don't see the Red Sea being parted. But we still see miracles every day. Every time somebody comes to know the Lord as their Savior, that's something miraculous that we should be celebrating. Every time that um, the Lord brings you through something, it's something miraculous that we shouldn't be afraid to be proud and boast about. The Bible says this in Proverbs 16.1, The hoary head is a crown of glory, if it be found in the way of righteousness. These young people need to see some hoary-headed ones that are found in the way of righteousness. Gideon here, he is distraught. He's at his wit's end, and he doesn't even know how good God has been. And we see why later on. We see that he doesn't have this spiritual influence in his life. See, God has created each one of us with that purpose and for his will, but sometimes we can only do it in his mind. And I think that's the point where Gideon's at. Sometimes God has to allow us to be so broken that we understand we have no strength left and that we have to rely on him. And as we go on and read in verse 14, it says, And the Lord looked upon him and said, Go in this thy might, and thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. So if we were to read that, it almost sounds like the Lord saying, Well, go on. Go on in your own might. Take care of it. I'm telling you to do it. Go ahead and go do it. Gideon's like, What? But we forget that last part of that verse 14. Have not I sent thee? See, the Lord's not ever going to tell us to do something and not be there with us. Gideon's response is one that I think all of human nature would ask and respond with. And I have never talked to a person who has answered a call by God and they were completely, okay, I'm just going to go do it. Because a lot of times when we answer a call for God, it requires us to sacrifice some things in our life. Um, And I'm sure he was unsure at first. And that's what he says in verse 15. He said unto him, O my Lord, wherewith shall I save Israel? Behold, my family is poor in Manasseh. I am the least in my father's house. So Gideon, he responds, he says, look, uh, how can I do this? I'm nobody. Once again, as I started, remember, Gideon is a nobody. He is a nobody to everybody looking out from from the outside in. But when Christ steps on the scene, he sees something special in Gideon. And the Lord's response is, well, you can do it because I'll be with thee. The Lord said unto him, verse 16, And the Lord said unto him, Surely 
I will be with thee. And thou shalt smite the Midianites as one man. I believe those five words in Scripture are the strongest words that we can lean on, especially when spoken by God. I will be with thee. When does God say he'll be with us? Always. He'll never leave us, never forsake us. He will always be with us. And we don't lean enough into that. You know, times get tough in our lives, and we get so caught up in the debacle of life, and we don't lean on those five words. I will be with thee. If you're a child of God tonight, if you've accepted Christ into your life, God has a promise for you. I will be with thee. He's not going to leave you. He's not going to forsake you. He's not going to leave you high and dry. Poor Gideon here says, how in the world can I do this? God says, it's fine, son. I got you. I'm going to be right there with you. And I believe those words are so strong because it's God speaking them. Numerous times throughout scripture, we see God speak those five words. And every time, it's not a, if I have time, I'll be with you. It's not a, if I got nothing else going on, I'll be with you. I'm going to be honest. I try my best to be a good dad, but there's times when I have to look at my kids and say, I don't have time for it, kids. I'm so thankful that I have a heavenly father that never looks at me and says, I ain't got time for you, son. He says, I will always be with you. And I look at that and I begin to understand exactly what he's telling Gideon. He says, all right, I know it's tough, but you're going to do it. And it's this definitive statement. Not only does he say he's going to do it, he says, in verse 16, he says, And the Lord said unto him, Surely I'll be with thee, and thou shalt smite the Midianites as one man. He says, Not only are you going to do it, but you're going to do it with ease. Once again, when we, when we put our strength and we, we just set it aside and we say, You know what? I can't do it, but God can. And when we lean into that, it's amazing the type of confidence that we can have. Once again, it has to be in God's will, it has to be for God's purpose. It has to be God, for God's plan. But when we lean into those words, I will be with thee, and we understand that God's saying, I'm going to be right there beside you, then it's amazing what we can accomplish for the Lord. It's no different here. He says, I'll be with thee, and thou shalt smite the Midianites as one man. He's telling Gideon, I've sent you, so guess what, Gideon? I'm equipping you. Whatever the Lord's calling you to, whatever the Lord's telling you to do with your life, he's not telling you to do it and then figure it out. He's saying, do it, and then I'm going to give you all means to do it. I'm going to be right there with you, and I'm strong enough, Gideon. I'm strong enough that all of Midian is going to feel like you're fighting one man. One of the, the quotes that Pastor likes to use, and it was given by a man named William Carey, and it's, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. That statement isn't made by somebody who's not believing that I will be with thee from God. That statement is saying, you know what? Things are going to be tough. I can't do it all in my own power. The things that God has asked of me sometimes, they're just out of my mind that I, I can even think about doing that, but I'm going to do it because God said he'll be with me. God may give us more than we can handle in our own strength. The task he's given Gideon here is not one that one boy, one man, young man could take on himself. Gideon surely probably didn't believe God at first. Once again, at this point, he still doesn't know that this angel of the Lord is the angel of the Lord. 
Uh, <clears throat> because the first thing he does is he comes up with an excuse. You know, he says, uh, you know what, uh, I'm the least. I'm the least in my family. I'm just a poor boy. First of all, what, well, any of this command here, was any of it about money? No. How many times do we come up with a stupid excuse to give God? You know, oh, I, I can't do it. I got something planned that day. Really? You got something planned that's more important than what God's told you to do? You ain't got your priorities right. I mean, I mean it's that simple. If, if, you're, if, you, if you're saying something's more important than God, then you ain't got your priorities right. If, if you're saying, uh, like Gideon, well, you know, I'd love to witness somebody, but I'm, I'm broke. I got no money in my pocket. It don't cost you a dime to go tell somebody about Jesus. It don't, it don't cost you nothing but your time. Go tell somebody about Jesus. You can leave here tonight and go tell somebody about Jesus. It don't cost you nothing. So his excuse here, it doesn't even hold water. It's, you know, it's him saying, I'm a poor boy. I'm the least, least in my family. Nothing that God has told him to do matters, any of that. None of that matters, okay? So he's given an excuse. Um, he says, I'm the least in my father's house. And once again, God's not going to reject anybody because of their stature in their household or in their family. Uh, you could be the one that nobody in your family likes, okay? Hopefully that's not the case. But uh, you could be the one in your family that nobody likes and God still can use you. That doesn't matter to God, Okay? So his excuse here is, is just one, he's like, you know, find somebody else, God. You know, you don't really want me, okay? But he goes on to tell him. He says, surely I'll be with you, and you will smite the Midians. And that, actually, for whatever reason, kind of gets Gideon thinking. And it kind of turns his mind around. Enough that Gideon goes in, and we're going to read on here in uh, verse 17. And he said unto them, if I found grace in thy sight, then show me a sign. That thou talkest with me. Depart not hence, I pray thee, until I come unto thee and bring forth my present and set it before thee. And he said, I will tarry until thou come again. Gideon went in and he made ready a kid and unleavened cakes of ephah of flour, the flesh he put in a basket, and he put the broth in a pot. And he brought it out unto the, under, to him under the oak and presented it. And the angel of God said unto him, Take the flesh and the unleavened cakes. And lay them upon this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord put forth the end of his staff that was in his hand and touched the flesh and the unleavened cakes. And there rose up fire out of the rock and consumed the flesh and the unleavened cakes. Then the angel of the Lord departed out of sight. <clears throat> so Gideon says, you know what? If, if, if you really, what you're telling me is true, I, I need some kind of sign. I, I need something that's going to verify what you're saying to me is true. And Gideon, uh, sometimes we overlook this, he, in his, his, his own gentle way, he says, you know what, um, I, I'm being rude. Let me go get a present for you. Well, let's sit down and hash this out. Let's talk this out. Okay? And one commentator wrote this, and I, I've overlooked this so many times, as many times as I've read it, but as I read this, it just it dawned on me. What was Gideon doing right before this? He was just trying his best to get some wheat. He just wanted some food. And what Gideon do? He goes you know what? He just said, I'm a poor boy. I ain't got nothing to give. But then he goes, if, if what you're telling me is true, let me go get what I do have. Let me bring it to you. Let me present you with a present. That brings me to my final point this evening. Be willing to give it all for God. <clears throat> so Gideon goes and he, he makes this, um, this meal. Um, and as he makes it, he brings this present. 
And he says, uh, you know, just stay here and I'll bring it back to you. And of course, this guest says, well, yeah, I'll, I'll wait here till you get back. And then uh, Gideon goes and he makes what little bit of food he has for this person. And uh, verse 19 there also describes how Gideon prepared the meal. He found a kid. He made it ready. Gideon also made some unleavened cakes from the leftover flour there. And uh, maybe some broth. It might have been like a soup or gravy. Or, and he takes all this to where the guest was. And he comes to this guest. And the guest asks him to do something really weird. So the visitor tells Gideon, he says, Now I want you to put the meat and the unleavened cakes on this rock. Then I want you to pour out the broth on it for me. Let's, let's think about this, okay? Israel's starving to death. Gideon goes out of the kindness of his own heart. He goes, if what you're telling me is true, that's fine. Let's sit down. Let's talk about this. Let me make you a meal. We'll sit down. And we'll talk about this. He brings the meal out to this person. And the person says, go ahead and pour it all out there and waste it for me, Gideon. Just throw it all out there. Throw it all out there on that rock for me. If I'm Gideon, I'm saying, hold on, bucko. Let me eat some of this first. I'm hungry. You know, I, you, you came up on me when I was trying to get some food. Let me eat some of this before we waste all of it. But he doesn't. Gideon just obeys. Gideon didn't even know the rest of the story at this point. But he did as the visitor commanded. As soon as that visitor took the, the end of his staff and he touched that, the Bible says that it was consumed up with fire. And then he departed out of the sight of Gideon. Uh, verse 22, And when Gideon perceived that he saw an angel of the Lord... Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for because I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Gideon thinking, I just seen God, I'm going to die. That's it. Uh, that's why he called me a man of valor, because I was facing him and he's going to kill me. Right now, that was my battle. I'm dead. Um, and he's scared. He's absolutely scared for his life. Um, and the Lord said unto him, Peace be unto thee. Fear not, for thou shalt not die. Then Gideon built an altar there unto the Lord and called it Jehovah Shalom. Unto this day it is yet in Ophrah of the Abyssalites. Verse 25, And it came to pass the same night the Lord said unto him, Take thy father's young bullock, even the second bullock of the seven years old, and throw down the altar of Baal that thy father hath. Cut down the grove that is by, or that is by it. And build an altar unto the Lord thy God upon the, this rock and in the ordered place and take the second bullock and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the grove, which thou shalt cut down. Then Gideon took 10 more of his servants and did as the Lord said unto him. And so it was because he feared his father's house, behold, and the men of the city that he could not do it by day, that he did it by night. So Gideon sees what happens with this meal that he presented. It gets burned up by this angel of the Lord and uh, obviously, the angel of the Lord had disappeared, but he still hears an audible voice telling him, uh, Peace be unto thee. If you're not, you're not going to die. Um, and Gideon uh, realized uh, just at that moment, he realized exactly who he had been dealing with. He realized clearly that he had seen this angel of the Lord. And then the angel of the Lord gives him yet a test. Um, so Gideon's like, you know, let, let, me, let me talk to you about this. Let's secure if, if this is the real deal. Let me figure out if this is really what you want me to do, Lord. Uh, we'll sit down and we'll talk about it over this meal. And the Lord answers with, instead I'm going to give you a test. One of the things that we have to remember as a Christian, sometimes the Lord will bring us to a test. Sometimes he might call us into a, a section of ministry or a place in our life, and he might give us a test. 
We may not be able to have that peaceful moment where we sit down and have a meal and talk about it. Instead, the Lord may say, I'm going to see if you're ready for this. He gives Gideon a test. This test was going to be a difficult one for Gideon. It wasn't going to be an easy undertaking. Uh, one thing that we see here, as we're going to read on, um, he tells him to uh, go into thy father's area, go into thy father's land, and this is what I want you to do, okay? Um, jumping back up to verse 26, and uh, verse 25, and it came to pass that the same night the Lord said unto him, take thy young, father's young bullock, even the second bullock of the seven years old, throw down the altar of Baal that thy father hath, and cut down the grove that is by it, and build an altar upon, unto the Lord thy God upon the top of this rock. Okay, so this test that he's given him, he says, okay, uh, remember how earlier I said he didn't have a good spiritual influence? He, the, the angel of the Lord says, I want you to go to your daddy's house. And there's something that shouldn't be at your daddy's house. I want you to tear it down, Gideon. Uh, this test is going to be difficult because it was his father's house. For one reason or another, Joash had allowed uh, this altar and this, this uh, pagan god of Baal to be worshipped here on his own property. Uh, we don't know whether he built it or if somebody else built it there. Either way, he was just as much at fault because he allowed it to be on his property. Um, and this god Baal was worshipped, of course, by the Canaanites. Gideon would be risking the wrath of his own family if he didn't tear down dear old dad's altar. Uh, god told him to tear it down, and that, uh, that would take some courage. But that's not all. He says... I want you to go tear down that altar, and when you're done tearing down that altar, I want you to go to the grove that's beside it, and I want you to cut every bit of it down. And then once you cut it down, I want you to, to burn up that grove. Uh, and then I'm going to have you give a sacrifice to me out of everything that you've just done. So I want you to think about this. This was Gideon's daddy. <clears throat> Joash had either built or permitted this altar, and now Gideon was told, Okay, I want you to go to your daddy's own land, take your daddy's own cattle, tear down your daddy's altar, tear down your daddy's grove, and make an altar to me. Do it in front of everybody. Sometimes in life, we might have to go against the people that love us the most and that we love the most. Not because we don't love them, but because our, God, our love for God should be more. What he's asking of Gideon means that Gideon's going to have to go against his family. I pray that none of you have to go into your family in any aspect whatsoever. But if you do, understand that serving God is still sweeter than anything you can get from your family. Because God's love is unconditional. Uh, there's a saying that it says, man proposes, but God disposes. And God was certainly getting ready to prove that right here. God was going to have the last word. And Gideon got that message loud and clear. Because he goes and he does it. Now, he's a little scared still. We know he doesn't do it in broad daylight. He goes in, in, in the shadow of night, and he does it. And what I like most about this is, you know, there are, there are times that call for discretion. And you know nowhere in Scripture does God condemn Gideon for doing this at night. God's timing was perfect. God's plan was perfect. And Gideon did as God had told him to do it. But he does it under cover of night. Not only that... But sometimes I think we skip right over this. It says that Gideon goes and he does it. But verse 27, he says, Then Gideon took ten men of his servants. Those ten men are overlooked so many times in Scripture. Those ten men are just as guilty as Gideon. They're facing every punishment that Gideon's going to be facing. 
and yet they do it. Let me tell you, folks, we need some 10 men in our congregations. Maybe not the one that God's called to leadership role. Maybe not the one that God's called to go do something. But we need 10 men that says, you know what? That's God's man. I'm going to get behind him. God's called him to do it. They're the unsung heroes here. We don't know those 10 men's name. But they said, you know what? Gideon's saying God called him to do it. We're going to go help him. How many times do we not get behind the man of God when we should? We need to get behind these men of God and we need to help them. Gideon couldn't have done this on his own. He needed some help. So he grabs these 10 men, these servants, uh, and he goes and uh, he, he goes to, to do what God has told him to do. Um, and it was for, for a, a good reason that God had him do this. Obviously, God had already told Israel, the reason you're being oppressed is because you didn't listen to my voice. You're worshiping these false gods. <clears throat> so then he goes and he does this. And then the Lord also tells him, not only do I want you to do that, but build this altar and make a sacrifice to me. Gideon's first test was to throw down the altar of Baal, uh, which his father had permitted to be built. And every time I read this, I find myself amazed that uh, only Israel had, uh, if, they, if they would just woke up and understood, I, I mean, they're, they're false gods. I mean, if you read up on Baal, he's supposed to be this, this god of uh, harvest and everything else. And they're in family-like conditions every time, every single time. Um, they would just wake up and realize, hey, something's not right here. Um, but instead, they just keep doing the same thing. Um, so Gideon takes his, his ten men, they tear down uh, the, the altar of the Lord, and he goes and to, to perform his second test. He, he takes all this wood that he cuts down from the grove, and he builds this altar. Uh, jumping into verse 28, And when the men of the city arose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was cast down, and the grove was cut down that was by it. And the second bullock was offered up upon the altar that was built. And they said one to another, who hath done this thing? And then they inquired and asked, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, hath done this thing. Then the men of the city said unto Joash, bring out thy son that he may die, because he has cast down the altar of Baal, and because he hath cut down the grove that was by it. And Joash said unto all that stood with him, will ye plead for Baal? Will ye save him? He that will plead for him, let him be put to death while is yet mourning. If he be a God, let him plead for himself, because one has cast down his altar. Therefore on that day he called him Jerubel, saying, Let Baal plead against him, because he hath thrown down his altar. So we see after Gideon does this test that the Lord has asked him to do, we see something miraculous happen with his father. The people are all calling, Hey, your son tore down the altar of Baal. Bring him out here so we can kill him. And I, I, I truly believe there was a switch that flipped in Joshua's head. And he says, that was supposed to be our God. Yet my son tore it down like it was nothing. That's what we're supposed to be worshiping? So all these people are screaming at Joash and they're saying, bring your son out here. And what he says, he says, will you plead for Baal? Will you save him? What he's saying is, so you're going to save your God? That's, that's, that's not how that works. Supposed to, if, if he's God, he's supposed to be able to save you. The worst being somebody that, that they might have to save, it's, it's just crazy. It's preposterous. And it's like that switch flipped in Joshua's head. And he says, 
He that will plead for him, let him be put to death while it's yet morning. If he be a God, let him plead for himself. And right here, it's like we see Gideon's influence in others' life. You know, when we step up to the plate and we do what God's asked us to do, it's going to affect others around us. If we're obedient, others see that and it affects them. Now, I don't know how strong Joash was at this point. I don't know how much he believed in what Gideon was doing at this point. But it made him think. It made him start questioning a lot of things. And you know, sometimes as a Christian, that's all it takes. Be obedient to God and let the world question. What's different? Why are they so different? What's going on in their life? And that's what we see happen with uh, Joash here. And the question that I would ask tonight, as I'm getting close, is we see that Gideon is willing to risk it all. He's willing to, to face the, the punishment from his family. He's willing to accept any test that God has given him at this point. My question is, could we be like Gideon? Would we be able to stand up to our family? Would we be able to stand up to the world? You know, I can honestly say here that I spent 20 years of my life worrying about what the world thought of me, even after I became a Christian. And it wasn't until I let go of that and understand that I only care what Christ thinks of me. I hate to tell you this, I love you as a church family, but if every one of you hated me in this room, I still got a Savior that loves me. And I'm going to do everything in my power to my dying day to serve him. If we were faced with this kind of oppression, if we had to go up against the world, Gideon's going up against the world at this point. I mean, this is all he knows as a world. His family, the people in his town. He's got enemies now. The Lord's telling him, you're going to go face those enemies. Would we have the courage to step up to the plate and risk it all for God? And I'm not meaning just in death. Because I'm going to be honest, as, as the one man said, he said, the, the worst thing that the world can do to me is deliver me to the hands of Jesus. Death is easy, but living for the Lord is hard sometimes. And I wonder in our life if we could serve the Lord and risk everything to serve the Lord as Gideon did. That quote early, from, earlier from a man named William Carey, if you've never read about his life, I encourage you to find a way to, to read about his life. Uh, that man devoted his life to serving the Lord in India and the things that he did throughout his life. It's amazing. But my question tonight is whatever God is calling you to do, would you be willing to risk it all? Because he made you with a purpose. He made you knowing that he could give you his strength to do whatever his purpose was. But would you be willing to risk it all to accomplish that purpose? I wonder if we could bow our heads tonight and I'll have a piano player Gary come.